Hello, and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor, and for more than seven years, over 300 interviews, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. Today, we're speaking with Avril Biakas, ACE. She edited the biopic Respect about Aretha Franklin. Avril has been nominated and won numerous editing awards in her native South Africa. Her films as editor include the TV series Queen Sugar and Women of the Movement and feature films like Red Dust and Yesterday. Yesterday was nominated for an Oscar in 2005 for Best Foreign Language Film. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. It's a pleasure to meet you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Tell me how you came to edit this project. You know how that thing happens with editors and directors sometimes where you meet somebody for the first time, you edit for them, and you just find yourself perfectly in sync. Yeah. So that was how it worked with us. We found ourselves perfectly in sync on the first gig we did together, and then she went away and did other things. I went away and did other things, and when this project came up, she really fought hard to get me on it and she was successful. So that's how I came to be on it. That's fantastic. Do you remember how that relationship started that first time that you met the director? I was working for Ava DuVernay mm -hmm. on a TV series called Queen Sugar, the Oprah Winfrey channel yeah. series. And Liesl was brought on as one of the directors. So that's how we got together. So it was actually a wonderful opportunity because on Queen Sugar, I worked with all indie film directors. They are not new directors, but they were new to television. I, you know, I worked with Nima Barnett, Julie Dash, a whole wonderful list of directors, and Liesl was one of them. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that was on season two. Yeah, Queen Sugar was one of those that I'd been thinking about doing an Art of the Cut on. I'm sorry that I missed you on that, but we got you on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did four seasons of that, yeah. Did you do any research? Did you read biographies? Yes. I read the biography called Respect. I think it's David Ritz is the guy's name. I read that very thoroughly from beginning to end. Even before I had gotten the job, I read the book. I watched a whole lot of videos. All the music videos I could find. I listened to a lot of the music. I was familiar with a lot of Aretha's music. And then I watched the Amazing Grace documentary as well, the Sydney Pollack one. So I went into it having watched and read quite a lot. And do you think that helped you? There's been discussion with editors that I've talked to, especially ones where there's an actual book, where it's a movie based on a book or a novel. Do you read it or don't you read it? Okay, so in this case, the movie isn't based on a book. That was a biography of Aretha. It's her whole life. We just did a section of her life. But what was, I think, very interesting to me from an editing point of view is that in the you are made acutely aware of the fact that she curated what people knew about her. And so when it came to doing the film, we were very mindful of the fact of not betraying her. Yes, there are things you want to put out in the world that she didn't want to put out in the world, so that's inevitable. But at the same time, you don't want it to just be salacious. The book makes it very clear that there is just so much that she didn't want the whole world to know. And as an editor, I kept that in mind all the time. I did not want to betray her in that sense. So for me, it was reading the book was getting background. I would always want to read the book, no matter what. 
I would want to arm myself, even if it was based on a book, I would want to arm myself with as much knowledge as I could before going on to the project, unless it's a case of where I've been told, oh, but we just disregarded the book. Then I would go, okay, then it's not. Right. But otherwise, I think I would prefer to read the book. Sure. So this is a director that you knew before. And do you have a specific collaboration style yourself with any director? Or did you find a specific way of collaborating with this director? I can't say that I have a specific style because every director is different. And I work with so many directors. So I try and adapt however I am to what suits them. Because ultimately for me, it's about their vision. They need to choose the style of collaboration. If I find it's a style that's totally incompatible with how I work, then I'll speak up and say, do you mind if I do this or do that? But generally I try and fit in with the director. With Liesl, it was just really easy. The first time we worked together, what changed on this particular production is we had just started post. We were shooting in Atlanta, so we're doing dailies in Atlanta. Then they still had some pickups to do in New York. So the crew went to New York. We stayed in Atlanta, finished the editor's cut, went to New York. Two weeks later, New York went into lockdown. Mm. Pivotal had rented offices for us. We had to move out of there and each one went to where they were living at the time. So I was in a rented apartment. So MGM rented another apartment in the same building for me to work from. And basically we were there each one in his own little space until almost right at the end of the production when things had started calming down a little bit COVID-wise in New York. Liesl came to the edit suite once or twice or three or four, I can't remember exactly how many times, but that was just before lock, literally a week before we're locking. Of course, you can imagine that changed the entire dynamic of working together. So it wasn't always smooth sailing. Some days it was really difficult. However, we had found a way to work together seamlessly in LA, didn't apply anymore. The VFX guy was there. I was here, my music editor, we were all over New York City. My first assistant, Ernest Lee Boyd, he was in New Jersey. We were just doing the best we could. <laughs> MGM didn't want us to understandably work on the internet. We didn't have footage passing over the internet. Ernest and I each had a hard drive with the project on and then every night I would send him my project so that he could keep up to date with what I was doing. The VFX editor, was uh, Ben, was doing exactly the same thing. So that's how we worked. Susanna, who was the music editor, same thing. So we were just exchanging projects and sending each other files via Okta, the very secure site. So we could do, we could send each other files. We could send, she could send me music. Chris Bowles, the composer, could send us music and graphics could be sent, everything. But we were not, we were not doing a Teradici server-based edit at all. We were working each one. In a way, I think it helped us because we didn't have to contend with that as well. We had to upgrade the internet in the apartment. Liesl had to upgrade her internet so that we had to do all of that in, order to just work every day. So I'm very grateful in a way that we didn't have to still contend with editing online. The service you're talking about was Okta? Called Okta, it's a server where we can send files securely, yeah. basically. Like a professional version of Dropbox yes. or something. Yeah, exactly. With a lot of encryption. <laughs> <laughs> with a lot of encryption. I'm really interested in your ability to deal with notes and the director in that kind of condition. Can you talk to me a little bit more about how you were able to collaborate, not technically, but socially and emotionally with Liesl during that? 
Lisa's a good communicator, so that really helps. She likes to do it live. So it wasn't a question of just giving me a bunch of notes and disappearing. We, we would work together. There's a lot of that I would do without her and then show her the next day, but just talking through things and working together quite intensely. That wasn't bad. We started getting notes from producers a few months later, and then Liesl and I would work through it together again. So in a normal environment, we probably would have had some of the producers come into the edit bay. So that didn't happen. Also, the producers were all in LA and we, Liesl and I were in New York. So there was a different dynamic already. But yeah, it wasn't difficult because we could work together. Had you been sharing cuts with her during production in Atlanta, or is she the kind of director that doesn't want that? She would pop in, I would show her things. We were on the lot where they were shooting, the screen gems. It was very easy. I would tell her I've got something to show her, and she would try and slip out, or she would come at night after they finished shooting or on a Saturday or something. So I didn't overwhelm her. I didn't say every scene you have to watch this. In the beginning, obviously a lot more, but as the shoot progressed, she also was working longer and longer hours. So towards the end, it wasn't possible anymore. So I just kept going. A lot of times I talk to editors about when someone gives you a note early in production, that can inform everything else that you do. You can use that little note for a hundred other things throughout the production. Did that yes, happen? That did. That happened when we were in Atlanta. And I think probably around a month into the shoot when I had quite a big set piece to show her and we watched it a few times. I remember even the screenwriter was also there that day and we talked through it and specific issues with me about how she's communicating something through that scene. And I was able to use that specific note all the way through in every single scene, not just the big set pieces. So it was just a nuance issue. Can you remember specifically what that is? Could you share that with me? It was one of the big scenes of Aretha's father in the church, preaching to the congregation and how Aretha was a little girl at that point. So it was the young actress is how she sees him, how the audience sees him, how we're going to see him and almost how he sees himself. And so she gave you that note and yes. you were able to use that yes. from then on. Definitely. I applied it to other scenes, obviously, yes. When you have a blank timeline and you're given a scene, what do you do? What's the first thing you do when you walk in in the morning? Okay, so that's all determined by the fact that I came up in the world of 35 millimeter. So I do this thing that my assistants have called a line cut which I think is pretty much what they also can do with script sync. But for me, the way I do it is more helpful to me. So I start off doing it and then my assistant will see how I'm doing it and they'll take it over if they have time during the day. And if they can't, I'll just do it myself. So I create a timeline where it's each take of your line, then each take of my line, then each take of your line, starting with the wide shots and then going into the close-ups. So I'll have... Literally, a, how are you? 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 <laughs> like that. <laughs> and the same thing with action. It'll be a section of action. So if there's a fight sequence, it'll be from this point in the fight to that point in the fight. I then lay that on my timeline and then I start whittling through it. And that's basically how I cut. And part of that is also group sequences. So I can switch between cameras. For instance, if they do you and me, you're A camera, I'm B camera then it gets split up even further in the line cut. Is there something that you do to keep that from getting too choppy? Because sometimes I edit the exact same way. 
I do it in larger chunks. I usually do three or four lines, breaking a scene up into, depending on how long it is, maybe five pieces or six pieces or ten pieces instead of line by line. But sometimes I find that at those breaks, my editing gets choppy. Is it something that you just do and then fix later on? Or is there something that you do while you're trying to assemble that keeps you from thinking of it as individual little lines, which of course would be a problem? Because I always watch my dailies, I already know what it looks like without chopping it up. Ah. So I remember, oh, but this section of the scene needs to play in one shot or that I need to leave three or four lines running it in one shot. Because I watch dailies, I pretty much will eliminate that. And yes, I'll watch it back and go, oh, I'm cutting too much and then I'll pull it out. <laughs> yeah. I think that is a danger. If I hadn't been watching dailies, yes, I think I could fall into that trap quite easily. Because I've talked to people that instead of watching the dailies as they are, they use that line cut. Yes. Before you get the line cut, you're watching the dailies maybe strung out as a camera roll, or do you just click on each individual take in the bin? Yeah, I just click on each take. Do you bother making notes because you're going to have that line cut, or are you making notes in your dailies or just remembering things in your head? It's a combination, I think. Sometimes I had, uh, on this specific project, I had so much footage that I had to make notes. The timeline picture that I sent you of the stacking. Yeah. So that is something I did with every song. Um, I think that specific one, there were 15 layers of video. Each of them was two or three or four cameras. So in actual fact, it was more like 48 or 60 layers of video. And then that's a process where I'll literally whittle it away and whittle it away. So I'll end up having 15 or 16 versions. Each one has been whittled away more and more. It's like creating a little wooden sculpture, whittling away with a knife. That's essentially what I'm doing. I'm whittling away with a knife until I've got a timeline with maybe three or four tracks of video. Those are my final decisions. Yeah, there's definitely different kinds of editors. There's the builders and there's the cutters downers. <laughs> yes. I'm a cutter downer. <laughs> I build it first and then I cut it down. <laughs> yeah, like the chiselers. It's that old analogy of seeing the sculpture inside of the rock. And with the musical sequences, what was also important is that they were not just musical sequences. They were actual part of the storytelling. The songs that Liesl chose for the film, she chose specifically because they were telling the story. So it's not just let's stop the story and have a musical number. It is that song is part of the story. So when you cut it, you're not cutting it as a musical sequence. You're cutting it as story. That was a really interesting way of working for me is that, yes, you have all these cameras and all these shots, but you're still telling a story. Mm -hmm. So it's not just pizzazz. It's storytelling. That was also important with the stacking because the stacking in those cases was acting as my line cut. But because with a musical performance, you're less likely to use line by line. You know, it just doesn't work that way, especially with Jennifer. Oh, man, she can do 16 different takes and not a single one is the same. And they're all good. Was that tricky in the musical sequences that you couldn't have a performance be different than another performance? Let's switch it up. It wasn't the fact that you had to stick with one take. Definitely not. She's consistently good. But you would probably be more inclined to use a chunk from each take as opposed to shorter bits from each take. Because you're not just cutting picture. Those are all live performances. She did pre-record, but she performed live anyway. And the live performances were really brilliant. So we wanted to use as much of them as we could. 
I just talked to Myron Kirstein who cut in the Heights and they did the same thing that the performances were live. Were you able to use those live performances without having noticeable audio differences? Yes, the miking was really good. Mm. So we didn't have a problem. She was mic'd close for everything. So yeah, we didn't have a problem. We even mixed and matched quite well. We didn't. And in some places, she may have picked up a line in the studio later on and it all blended flawlessly. She just said good. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> what is your approach to assembling scenes once you've got them cut? Obviously, movies are shot out of order. You really don't have context when you're cutting a specific scene. Are you someone that as soon as you've got scene two and scene three, you put them together or do you wait down the line? Yeah, I cut all in one timeline and every scene is in its proper place as soon as is possible. So every day I'm watching everything. So I'm cutting a new scene in place on the timeline. So I'm watching what comes before and what goes after. So I'm watching everything all the time. In your timeline, do you do the whole movie or are you just doing reels? No, the whole movie. I will always work in the whole movie. My assistant really has to pressure me to break it up into reels. (laughs) (laughs) Because I want to be able to just watch everything all the time. So if it's in reels, then I have to keep switching to a different reel. I think maybe because that's how I came up, we always had to stop because they had to go and put another reel on. So now that I have the luxury of not having to do that, I really don't want to do that. It's very funny because I just was talking to a young editor who saw that movies are cut in reels and they were saying, oh, is this, did you just cut in reels because the older editors, that's the way they're used to doing it? And I said, no, that's not the reason. (laughs) It's because of all of the deliverables and that kind of stuff. And I have also cut movies from beginning to end in one timeline, but I find it gets a little cumbersome. It doesn't get cumbersome for me. I think it's really hard on the assistants, also when they're busy working on sound and stuff, but they would clip it out into a reel and then just put it back into my timeline. That makes sense. And so when you're building, let's say scene seven comes in, you cut scene seven, and then whatever the next scene is that you're going to cut, you either start it before or after scene seven because you can't cut in order i'm never cutting in order now right. maybe the last week you get a cut in order you know whatever's left but no you don't cut in order and you're so, leaving some holes yes i leave a small a short black gap basically if i have to show it to somebody i'll put a slug in that says missing scene so and so but if it's just me working my timeline i'll just know there's a black hole yeah it's very handy for me because it means that i don't have to go back afterwards and try and smooth things out where i wasn't looking at how I'm coming into the scene or how I'm going out of the scene. Because often I find if I leave it till the end, there's a lot to change. Once you put two scenes together, you go, ah, I shouldn't have ended on that shot. I shouldn't have started that that way. I should have done. So now I'm already doing that. So I'm almost revising my cut on a daily basis as I'm putting new scenes into the timeline. Because I know that at the end of the day, I'm going to have very little time to get the editor's cut out to the director. So I'm trying to do as much work up front so that when my last dailies come in, I can really use that time in in a good way and not have to go back and fix things. I guess that's what I'm trying to do. I might have to adopt that. (laughs) (laughs) I love that idea. I just think how I like to start a scene with an empty timeline and be done with something short. I'm like, hey, scene six is done. If I did it in all in one timeline, I'd always be thinking, I've got two more hours of this. I've never worked the way you worked, so I don't know what that feels like. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
not even when I was cutting documentaries. I just never worked that way because I guess I just never trained myself to work that way. But I know even when I'm cutting episodic television, I work in all in one timeline. And then the assistants will break it up. Or they'll tell me that's where the act break is going to come. But for me, it has to flow as one piece. And then I can start breaking it up. I love that. But on respect, for instance, I think we went to reels only in the last month of post. Up until then, we've been working on single timeline. Well, that makes it so you don't have to rebalance the reels, at least, which is always a pain in the butt. For musical transitions, I knew more or less where the real break was going to happen. But that old thing that you had on 35 mil of you can't have music over a real, that's gone anyway. <laughs> yeah, true. When you've got an editor's assembly, let's talk about the process of mm-hmm. determining story structure and the broader pacing of the movie once you can see it all in context. Because I'm working on one timeline, I'm already looking at that. But the one thing that I really try and do with the editor's cut is to be able to show the director everything they did. So I'm not going to go in my editor's cut and take stuff out. I'll create old scenes that I put on a separate timeline where I feel very strongly about something. Someone can take a chunk of stuff out or a few lines or whatever, or I want to jump cut something that wasn't intended that way in the shoot. But I'll put that on a separate timeline where I'll create a whole timeline of alt versions of scenes. But what I like to show the director is what they shot. So that in post, it's not just me whittling away, but it's also the director whittling away. But at least I want them to have seen the film the way they shot it, the way they envisaged it. It can be vastly over length. That's not important to me at that point. At that point, it's important to me that they know what they have. In the same way that when I'm cutting, I want to see every single take, even if it's not a print take so that I know what I have. So that down the line, if I'm looking for something, I go, wait a minute, there was that. So the director should have at least the same process where they can go, oh, but I did have that. We might have taken it down. We're now in version 21 and it was in version five, but we have it and the director knows what it looks like. So that when they want to switch things up, they have all of that in their back pocket to work with. So, yes, I'm looking at pacing and I'm looking at all of that and I'm creating old scenes where I've already paced it up. But for the first screening with the director, I want them to see the full cut. Sure. And then you're working with the director to determine the shape of the film from that point on. Does that make versioning weird? Do you have to say, oh, we're cutting out this entire scene or we've moved this scene to another place? Then you're obviously saving your long cut. Yes, I say absolutely the long cut is saved and every sort of major iteration of the cut is saved. Well, I save a cut every day, so I mean, I have access and I'll sometimes mark the cut and say these scenes are gone or those scenes are gone. And I'll keep a paper trail of each cut and I'll keep a bin where I'm putting in deleted scenes and I color code each deleted scene according to which cut it was deleted from. So I'll know that that deleted scene came out of director's cut version one or director's cut version 10. And then I might put it back in at some point, but now it's a shorter version. So then I'll keep a copy of the longer version. So I have all these bins full of old scenes, essentially. So at any time during the process, I can go fetch something and put it back in. Love it. And that also helps a lot with producer's cuts and studio cuts. Because they're much more ready to go. Yeah. It doesn't take that long, then you could get things going much quicker because you've got all of that in your back pocket. 
can you think of any structural changes? Was this pretty chronological, this movie, or did you move things around in post that were different than the script? We actually played a lot. We played moving things around. We played moving them back. Some things stayed in a new position. Some things we said, no, the original script version was better. But we had a lot of different iterations of it. Also, we had quite a bit over length. So we would take scenes out and go, no, those really need to be in story-wise. And then we'd take a different scene out and we'd take half a scene out. So we did a lot of moving around. We did a lot of versions of the film. Can you think of some of the reasons why those moves happened? Yeah, I wouldn't say that we ever went off on a tangent because the Liesl and Tracy Scott Wilson, the screenwriter, had done a script that was very well thought out. The scenes were there for very specific story reasons. So if we had to lose scenes, it wasn't easy to lose scenes. And we didn't want to lose musical scenes because when you lose musical scenes, then you're just taking out what 90% of the audience is coming to see. One of the major things that we had to contend with is how soon do we get to the adult Aretha? Because a lot of the audience is going to want to get to the adult Aretha as soon as possible because it's Jennifer Hudson. So we did a lot of restructuring, trying something different, doing this thing. We tried pulling it out of chronological order, putting it back in chronological order. It seemed to always come back to chronological order because it just seemed to tell itself best that way. But it was something that we did spend a lot of time on is how soon do we get to Jennifer Hudson, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the crucial reasons that we're dealing with. And then later on in the story, we had scenes which dealt with a certain period in her life. We were doing little test screenings and we were never really sure, did we set it up enough? Because speaking about a film like this, as I think with a lot of biopics is, there's a huge section of the audience that knows that person's life in great detail. So you have to keep that in mind. So you don't want to spoon feed that. But at the same time, you want to draw in a whole new audience who has none of this knowledge. So you're always between those two and you're trying to find what is the best way. You don't want to irritate the people who know Aretha's life, but you also don't want to leave the people who don't know Aretha's life in the dark. So that was also a large part of what we were doing, restructuring, reordering, pulling things out of context, pulling it out of chronological order, putting it back. Those are the two major sections in the form that we had to deal with. I talked to Tatiana Regal about Cruella, which is clearly not a true story, but that was exactly what she said. The big thing is, when do you get to the adult Cruella? When do you get to Emma yes. Stone? Yes, it's really hard. I mean, Sky Dakota Turner, who plays a little Aretha, her scenes are beautiful. I mean, she's really, really good. But you know that the audience is sitting there waiting for Jennifer Charles. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, I love the early Cruella scenes. She was a great little actress, but you're like, where's Emma Stone? Come on, let's go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Now, if you restructure and pull it out of chronological order, you can keep going back to those earlier scenes, but sometimes it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Once you're in the adult life, you don't want to go back. I love the fact that most editors are pretty comfortable saying, we tried this, it didn't work. We tried that, it doesn't work. There's an advantage. There's a purpose to failing, right? There's a purpose yes. to trying something and going, okay, we tried it. It didn't work. Now we throw that idea out and we go back to chronological, for example. Yes. I think it's really important to both the editor and the director, and especially together, 
to try everything. Even to try things knowing in your heart it's not going to work. Let's just try it anyway. And also it helps for later on down the line when the studio says try this, you know in your heart you've really tried, it didn't work, and now you already have that cut ready to show them, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it's easier, I think, for a director to be able to argue a point if they've already tried every single thing. If they've already tried all the things that the studio is still going to ask for, then they know what to say. They know how to argue the point. They know how to push back. It's Those things are all really important. Talk to me about personality, your personality, the way you think, because so much of what I've talked to many editors about is ego, how it, there's no place for an editor's ego in the cutting room. When you're cutting a scene that you know isn't going to work, how do you keep your eyes from rolling? <laughs> and all the other editors, honestly, <laughs> On camera for everybody to see. Yeah, I okay. know a lot of was, editors that say they're glad that the director is behind them so the director cannot see their eyes rolling. <laughs> okay, so I didn't have that lecture. Exactly. The director could see me all the time. I can honestly say on this production that never happened. I never had cause to roll my eyes at all. Hmm. It has happened in the past and then I have had the director sitting behind me. I agree with the fact that there's no place for ego in the cutting room. And I think when you choose to be an editor, that's already part of your DNA, that you don't have a massively strong ego because that's not who you are when you're an editor. It is always going to be the director's film. It's always going to be the way they want to tell the story, not the way you want to tell the story. Yes, you can help them, you can guide them, you can advise them. But ultimately, if they want to tell the story that way, they're going to tell the story that way, and they should. I always say, if somebody says to me, but you wouldn't have done it that way. Yeah, but I'm not the one who put myself out there. I didn't go and hunt this job as a director. I didn't go and have to pitch to studios and stuff to get this job. I didn't create the lookbook. This is the director's vision. This is the director's form. So for me, my ego is not important in that case. Where my ego does become a problem for me is when I've cut a scene that I think is really well cut. And then the director comes and changes it completely. <laughs> so that's where I find my ego becoming a problem. And then sometimes it ends up being like a good 50-50. And then sometimes we'll go back to my version. But that's one of the things that's harder for me to deal with. is when I know I did a really good job on the scene. And the director just doesn't see it that way. And how much do you push back on that? Or do you not push back at all? Do you fight for your idea? I will fight for my idea if I think it's better for the film. So for me, my loyalty is always going to be with the film. So I can sometimes make myself very unpopular because I'm fighting so hard for the film. It turns out that way that when you work with directors that you get on well with, you tend to have the same feelings about what's good for the film. Often the fight is not with the director, it's with maybe a producer or maybe somebody from the studio and then you're united in that fight. So it doesn't happen to me very often where I have to fight the director. I do if I feel that my version is better for the film, but then I have to know that it really is. So I have to listen very carefully to the director and why the director feels my version isn't right, and then I'll either be won over or I'll still go, no, I still think mine is better. But you do reach a point where you know, okay, now I have to step back because it's not my fault. I've heard a rule of three. You fight for it at the beginning when they say they want their way. You come back halfway through cutting the film and try to get your idea again. 
And at the end, you maybe try to get your idea back in, and then you've just got to say, I want to keep my job, and I want to keep my relationship with this director. No more fighting. <laughs> I agree with the three. I think the three is about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I must be honest with you that I think I sometimes don't stop in time, and then I think, okay, well, I think it's going to be a really good film because I stepped up, but probably this director's not going to want to work with me again. <laughs> Yeah. And, and that must have been nice for you with Liesl because you'd already worked with her before and she probably saw that when you disagreed, it was because you were fighting for the story and not because you were fighting for your way. Yes. And I think then if we still disagreed, it was just simply because we saw things differently because everybody's coming from a different point of view. Yeah. So no matter what you're working on, you are going to see it differently because your experience of life is different. And especially in a form like Aretha, because everybody's life is different to hers, but you have certain things in common with her, or, you know, especially as a woman, you'll have certain things in common with her, but different women will have different things in common. And an African-American person is going to have a different experience to me. You know, you've got to be mindful of all of that when you're fighting for your point of view, because sometimes your point of view is just not important and it's not valid. That reminds me of how empathy is another thing that you've got to bring into the DNA of being an editor. Can you talk about how empathy informs your editing? I do this very weird thing when I'm editing in the sense that I step into the shoes of the character. So I become, I think, ultra empathetic. I'm just going to relate it back to Queen Sugar for a moment. So that was story about a family. So I would step into the shoes of the entire family. This film, which was stepping specifically into the shoes of Aretha, whether it was a small Aretha or the adult Aretha. So while I'm editing the film, and especially during the editor's cut period, when I'm not really dealing with anybody else, it is me and the footage, I live in that world. So it becomes part of my DNA for that period of time. So I never have a problem trying to find the empathy. And also I'm attracted to particular kinds of stories where I think, I don't know how I would cope had I cut a Jeffrey Dahmer film. I don't think I would have coped, so I wouldn't have chosen that film. So I know where my empathy is limited and I won't go there. I won't go to a project where I cannot feel empathy because then why am I doing it? Mm -hmm. So I have to have empathy with the character that I'm working with. That's a very interesting idea. I've talked to William Goldenberg about how many of the films that I saw that he was editing had something to do with society and social morals. And he said, yeah, I choose those projects. Those are the projects that I want to be on, the ones that talk about racial justice, and that's what I want to do. Do you have an agent that helps you find those projects or look for those projects or understand when you don't want to do something because you can't be empathetic to the character? Oh, absolutely. My agency is Eastern Talent. And so Maureen Toth, when we had our really first get together, we spoke about it at length because it's always been the guiding principle for me in choosing a project. We've all done projects that we needed to do because we needed to work and earn money. So I have tons of those, but I'm very specific about Yes, social issues. I'm just not the kind of person to cut. I'll come back to Jeffrey Dahmer or you know anybody like that. And I want to know that I'm working on something that not only people can relate to, but that can change their hearts or if their hearts are already in the right place, just speak to them. Otherwise, why am I doing this? That's the whole reason why I got into the business in the first place was to be able to use the medium to bring about change and to make people's lives better in some way or another. So if I can't do that, then I do turn down jobs where I feel there's nothing 
that I can relate to. What was the transition like for you from 35 mil to cutting on an Avid or Lightworks? What was your first NLE and, and how did that go? Were you aware of the transition phase between film and nonlinear, which was VHS offline? <laughs> did you or do beta cam, beta cam offline? <laughs> well, I did that transition myself. So, yeah. Uh, okay. That was like, after that, I would have welcomed anything. <laughs> oh, other than videotape, you would? Because remember that 35 millimeter is nonlinear. Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. you can just take something and put it in there which you couldn't do on Betacamp offline or anything like that. Yes. You had to go and relay the program from scratch. So I really welcomed NLEs. I, the first system I ever worked on was something called EMC Square. I don't know if you remember oh, that. Yeah. So I worked on EMC Square. Then I worked on this sort of what I call the Mickey Mouse version of EMC Square with something called D-Vision, which was really just a step up from VHS offline. <laughs> And then I worked on Lightworks, and then I worked on Avid. Wow. Do you remember the first project that you worked on EMC Squared or Avid, or the year or the project? EMC Squared would have been around about in the mid-90s. So I was still in South Africa, and it would have been a TV series, I'm sure. We switched. So in South Africa, you worked on everything. So you would do a TV series, then you do feature, then you would do a documentary. Feature films were almost late to the party in terms of editing because Avid wasn't widely available. It was really, really expensive for an industry that didn't have the budget that American films have. So that's why I say Avid came into mind. The first feature film I cut non-linear was on Lightworks. I think the first feature film I cut on Avid was in 1998. Was there something that you brought with you either from editing 35mm or editing on video that informed or helped your nonlinear editing? Okay, then the line cutting would not have existed had I not started on 35mm. So my assistants used to do that for me on 35mm, the line cutting. Wow. Yeah, so that's come with me and that's where I learned to do that. Because you keep watching different takes. You would have to take a reel off and put another reel on. If I had a scene with a lot of footage, I would sometimes have five reels of that one scene, line cut. But I would work in sections. So you'd have the first part of the first page of the scene, the second page of the scene. So the line cut that I still use to this day comes from 35 miles. Very interesting. But they probably had to cut that fatter, though, because you would have been losing frames. No, you don't lose frames on the cutting print. You only lose frames on the neck cut. So it's cut exactly the same way. Interesting. Okay. Exactly the same way. The one is just, obviously, it takes a lot longer to do. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to do a line cut in 35 mil. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's crazy. That's how I first learned it. So when I was assisting, I worked for an editor who did that. And then so I learned to do it for him. And then it just carried on from there. Makes sense. And what about documentary? You said you've cut some documentaries. Does that inform your feature work in some way or vice versa? I would say my feature or narrative work informs my documentary work in the sense of creating and telling a story. So I think even though I was doing both early on in my career, I was sort of pretty much hopping from the one to the other all the time. It was always the sense of the storytelling that drew me to a documentary. So it was using my storytelling that I learned from narrative into cutting documentaries. Also because I've worked on a lot of documentaries where people would shoot for a year or two and then bring you all the footage and leave you with the footage. <laughs> yeah. 
So that storytelling experience really came in handy. But I haven't worked in documentaries for a while. I was going to say, you would still, in documentaries, try to piece together an entire timeline instead of building little short stories, like a scene, build out a scene. You were always... Please tell me what the advantage is of doing one scene in a timeline. <laughs> Just tell me, because I don't, I don't... I'm not I'm, saying... I'm not I, with I it. am not saying that there's an advantage other than just... I don't know that I could wrap my head around that much material. I mean, sometimes I've talked to documentary editors where they're like, my timeline was 24 hours long. <laughs> yeah, I've had that. It slows the avid down. That's the only reason I would break it up because it starts slowing the avid down. I've had that on documentaries where I've had to actually break the timeline up because it, the avid just couldn't cope. Yeah. But uh, you wouldn't have that in a feature. Nobody's going to shoot a 24-hour feature. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. No, I asked the question because I simply don't, I've never done it, so I don't know what you feel when you're confronted with a long timeline as opposed to just having one scene. The only experience I have with it is if I'm doing an alt scene. If I'm cutting an old version of a scene, then I would just have that wonderful scene in the timeline. For me, it's compartmentalization. It's to be able to just think about just this much of the film, just some small piece, and then go, okay, I've got that scene that I can stick in if I need to, or I've built that. What other scene can I build? And I can't think about building the whole two-hour film. It's just too big for me. It's too much for my brain. But you don't, though. I mean, when I get my dailies, I'm working scene by scene. So I am thinking about that scene. But the moment I've cut that scene, then I'm thinking about that scene's place within the whole film. But while I'm cutting the scene, I'm just focusing on that scene. It happens to be in the timeline. But I mean, this part of the timeline, I'm not worrying about the ends of the timeline. You know what I mean? The beginning and the end. Yeah. But you've got maybe an hour of footage after the scene that you're cutting that you're trying to push along as you're adding to your scene. I love the idea. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around how I would do it. And everybody's different. When I'm in a scene, I'm not really aware of what's What's, around that scene. It's only after I finish cutting the scene that I immediately go, okay, now how does it fit in? Mm, but it's always in the timeline. You're cutting it's it always in the, in the timeline. timeline. Wow. But my timeline will sometimes get very long because I have a scene to cut. And when I put the line cut into the timeline, the line cut might be two hours long. I'm starting to whittle away it so quickly that it's two and a half hours long for half an hour. And it's never two and a half hours long again. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how long the editor's assembly was on Respect? <laughs> do you really want to know? <laughs> I really do want to know. <laughs> five hours. Wow. Five hours. But remember, there were full musical sequences. So Mm -hmm. every song was filmed in full. Even though we knew we wouldn't necessarily use the whole song, it was filmed in full so that we would have it if we needed it. So that contributed to a lot. Mm. But yes, on one (laughs) timeline. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite story about a long timeline is, I think it was David Lynch, uh, said to his editor when they got done with an editor's screening that was four hours long, he goes, it's perfect. I don't want to change a thing, but I have to deliver a two-hour movie. (laughs) You know how many times that has happened? (laughs) But that's a difficult place to be in, right? You've delivered a great film at five hours. It has to be half of that. How do you maintain? Okay, I knew when I delivered the five-hour, I knew there was a lot of fat there. I knew because I hadn't taken any lines out. As I said, I had my old scenes where I had, but for that cut, I didn't take anything out. So... It was easy to immediately lose quite a lot of time. Mm -hmm. 
So let's say it was easy to lose an hour. Right. It was sure, easy to sure. lose an hour. I believe it was easy to lose an hour, but now you still have to lose half. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not, but yeah. Yeah. And then how do you protect the things that you really want to protect? The moments, the fact that you don't want to cut any musical numbers, those are hard decisions to make. For a long time, we weren't cutting down on the musical numbers. For a long time, we just kept the music intact. Even though they were part of the story, we were working on the story around the musical numbers. We tightened and tightened and got quite a lot out of that and decided what scenes we didn't want. This is initially, this is why we we're working on the director's cut. Then we started focusing on, okay, musical numbers. Which ones do we want to play in full and which ones don't we want to play in full? And which ones do we just want to have a hint of a song and which ones maybe we pull the whole song out? And then when we went into that section, we also lost a whole bunch of time. So then we went back to, okay, now we've done that pass. Now let's look at shortening the scenes even more. Are there more scenes we want to take out? And I think we did lose entire scenes, especially in the earlier part of the film. But I think we did a pretty good job of keeping scenes in and cutting them down. Did it ever happen that you montaged scenes? Yes, not a lot because it wasn't necessarily written in a way that you could montage a scene. But yes, we absolutely did that. Were there any montages that were written as montages? Yes. There were a couple of those. And those are still montages, yeah. All right. I was going to ask about which ones weren't written as montages. Do you remember? Yes, there's a sequence more or less in the middle of the film which deals with Aretha leaving Columbia Records and going over to Jerry Wexler where we had full scenes telling us that story in quite a bit of detail and obviously we were trying to cut the movie down. If we didn't have to cut the movie down, we would probably have left them but we realized that we can tell that story may not be in such detail. We may be losing some of the nice finer things but we could still tell that story. So that became drastically reduced into a montage. Very interesting. And were all those changes that you made because of an actual time constraint or because you felt the audience can only sit for so long? It's more of a feeling of how long the story is than a, we've got to be out of here by two hours or two hours and 30 minutes or whatever they were pushing for. You know, Steve, the interesting thing is we did quite a lot of friends and family screenings and you can have a movie that's three hours that people find more compelling than a movie that's two hours. So that was really tricky. So we weren't restricting ourselves to only making these big changes because of time. We were also looking very carefully at the story we were telling and the story we wanted to tell and how we wanted to tell the story. And I think that was our guiding principle for most of the time. And then we'd sort of very reluctant to go, okay, but we have to lose time. <laughs> so we kept on Working on the film, working on the film, okay, we still have to lose the time. <laughs> so that would always be at the back of our minds, but it wasn't first and foremost in what we were doing. Avril, you've given me so much of your time today. I really appreciate this in-depth look. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's really been enlightening. Thank you, Steve. And I am going to, on my very next project, that I think I'm going to try your one scene for time. <laughs> I don't know. Don't just. Do I have it. to. I have to at least try to see why it came up so many times in this conversation. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not the only one. You are one of the very few people that I've ever talked to that edits in an entire timeline like that. Okay, so then even more reason why I need to try it. Not because it's wrong. I cut two films that way where I cut in a single timeline from beginning to end. The reason why I did it on both is because I came in after the shooting was done. So therefore, okay. I could cut in linear order. 
In linear order, yeah. And when I yeah. could cut in linear order, then I did. Yeah, I've done the same when I've come in after the shoot. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's a luxury. It's always interesting learning from other editors. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, these interviews are available to read at blog.frame.io, where they're supported with great visual content, images, video clips, and more. Also, it's a great opportunity to check out the other expert content on the blog for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Out of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks to my guest, Avril Biekas, ACE. Thanks also to Jake Gum for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. Thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. And so you don't miss out on all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. Have you ever reviewed a podcast? I'd love to see your review of this podcast. And remember that if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io. 